Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikki Samayodza. With me always, Mike Grandinetti. So we're happy to be here today. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. We're diving into health tech, into technologies that are pushing the boundaries and tackling some really important issues around health uh, around the world. Our guest today is Liam Kaufman. Welcome, Liam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and he's working on ideas that are taking pedestrian, our pedestrian definition of speech recognition and really blowing them out the water. Uh, we've talked about deep tech in previous episodes, uh, and the stuff that Liam and his company, Winterlight Labs, is doing is absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, Winterlight Labs is basically taking what you say and potentially using that to save your life, which is completely, completely crazy. Uh, Mike uh, and I are ready to dive in, so uh, let's get into it. Mike, it seems like there's a secret movement uh, between startups and industry, uh, and our guest Liam and, and his company are definitely pushing the boundary, and I feel like are reminiscent of some of the things we've talked about with deep tech. Why don't you uh, dive right in? I'd love to hear. Um, I know that you guys have talked before, and uh, I'd love to pick up that conversation and just keep going. Thanks, Nikiso. And again, I want to just second uh, the welcome to Liam. I know how crazy things can be running a startup, and uh, Thank you for taking the time to join us today in the studio. So let me just set this up very quickly. Um, about a month ago, I was asked to give a keynote speech at a hackathon for a major healthcare delivery company. It led me to doing a lot of research around how AI and machine learning are being applied in health tech. And I came across Winterlight Labs. And from that moment, I was just absolutely intrigued by what you guys are working on and have wanted to have a chance to have a chat with you. So, Liam, maybe we can start off with a little bit about your background, right? For those of you who uh, are not with us in the studio, Liam is actually here from Canada. Um, great to have a Canadian uh, joining us, uh, you know, representing a, a very interesting community of, of AI startups out of Toronto. So, Liam, if you would, just a little bit for uh, our listeners, a little bit on your background and sort of how you got to where you are today as the CEO of Winterlight Labs. For sure. So, a while back, I worked with a cognitive neurologist. Um, and at the time, I was using eye movements as a way of uh, quantifying cognitive impairment. And during that process, I administered these pen and paper cognitive assessments. And one of the things that struck me was that they're really subjective. So ultimately, as part of this diagnostic process for Alzheimer's disease, dementia, depression, etc., you go through these high friction, stressful, subjective assessments. Um, after that, I actually did a degree in computer science. And so what I was really interested in doing is sort of combining this background in medical science with computer science to come up with much more objective tools to measure disease. Great. And not surprisingly, you know, you're leveraging a lot of artificial intelligence. We'll certainly get into the specifics. But again, what a lot of our listeners probably don't appreciate is how substantial Canada is as an AI-based startup ecosystem. For those of you who may not be aware, two recent, uh, two Canadian professors, um, Professor Hinton from the University of Toronto and Professor Rangio from the University of Montreal, were awarded the Turing Award, which is the Nobel oh. Prize for math. That's okay? fantastic. And obviously they were contrarian when the rest of the world turned against neural networks. They decided that there was still more work to be done and they proved the world wrong and they were given the ultimate award for it. Lim, can you talk about what it's like to be in the Canadian AI ecosystem, the effect that you know these leading lights have had on the way that the community comes together and the impact it's had on the community? Yeah, I think you know as, as a Canadian, like we tend to be pretty modest. 
uh, like we tend to look towards the states as the ones that innovate, that disrupt, et cetera. And, and I think it's it's a huge confidence boost when the people who basically created a whole industry uh, go to the same university or teach at the same university that, that you went to. Um, and then you look at everyone who was in their lab and they're the people that are running AI, machine learning at Apple, Google, Facebook, et cetera. And so, so I think there's this huge like diaspora from these different labs. And then so all these experts have basically educated undergrad students, graduate school students. Um, and then these students have gone on to create companies, work at other companies, et cetera. So I think it's been a huge boost to the ecosystem in Toronto. That's great. And how about for Winterlight specifically? Are you drawing directly on the research of these two luminaries? Yeah, so my academic co-founder, Frank Rudzik, he has worked with with Hinton before. Um, some of the models and, and architecture that they built, we use. Uh, so absolutely. Okay. Now, again, we're talking about health tech, but we're talking about an emerging category of health tech. Eventually, for you, I think, will become more of a digital therapeutic. Um, but if you can, you know, we've talked about digital therapeutics on this podcast yep. before in yes, episode two. But love to get your perspective, right? Because this is a fascinating, um, you know, new path, right? So mm -hmm. instead of a, a $3 billion investment in a 12-year, you know, clinical trial, we're talking about something far more, um, you know, uh, immediate than that. And, and Boston happens to be the sort of the biggest cluster for digital therapeutics. So how do you view this emerging cluster and what kind of impact do you anticipate that it might have in the future on, on the quality of care? Mm -hmm. I think like the, the technology is is far ahead of the acceptance for it right now. Um, I, I think with, with anything in medical um, sciences, there's skepticism, like a healthy level skepticism towards new technologies. But we know that uh, apps, digital, et cetera, change behavior. We know that, you know, using Facebook changes behavior, et cetera. And so I, I think it's natural to start using that technology to uh, help with disease. And so you're seeing a lot of companies like Paratherapeutics, for instance, use this technology to actually make people better. And I, and I think that's natural. And I think where we're trying to play a part in all of this is that we've come up with a very objective way for actually measuring that response to therapy. And I think that's a really critical component to closing this loop. Great. So again, for our, our listeners, and I'm going to have you get into some detail, but you know, you're basically mining voice data. Uh, to look for biomarkers that that will communicate cognitive impairment. Now, people are mining voice data for a lot of different health-oriented modalities. Some, for example, for cardio health. Mm -hmm. You specifically chose, you know, mental health. Can you talk about what motivated you to one start up this company, mm -hmm. Winterlight, and and why you chose the direction of mental health over potentially other paths that you could have chosen? For sure. So my personal background is working with people who have Alzheimer's disease, people who've had strokes. And when you, you know, work with this population, you notice right away that they speak differently. Um, as you work with them more, or if you're a trained clinician, you tend to come up with different ways of describing these differences. So for instance, someone with Alzheimer's disease um, has word finding difficulties because of their, you know, memory challenges, they can't think of the right word. And so what we can do is we can actually quantify those differences. So maybe it's as simple as looking at pauses between words, they pause more frequently. Uh, maybe it's looking at the word choice, so they can't think of the right word, so they substitute for an easier word that's easier to remember. Okay. So at the at the highest level from everything, and by the way, congratulations on the article written about you in the Wall Street Journal and, and the, the New covers of the New York well. Times. Great. Yep. Um, but what's amazing is, right, two minutes worth of someone's voice recording 
is enough to give you an incredible amount of insight. Now, of course, that's very easy for all lay people to understand, but the technology underlying it is, mm-hmm. is anything but. And, you know, as you recently posted on LinkedIn, right, you're, you're hiring a new data scientist and you, you spoke about, you know, someone that's skilled in both machine learning and statistical learning. Can you draw some distinctions for our listeners between those two? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to be honest, there's a lot of overlap between the two. One thing that, that, that we're careful to do is that often the term AI is used very loosely. Um, and so it's important that we talk about machine learning or statistical learning as well, just to kind of uh, orient people towards the more scientific end rather than sort of the marketing end of the industry. Okay. So just to, uh, just to jump in a little bit. So one of the things you said in terms of, and in the question Mike posed about uh, being able to use two minutes worth of speech to start to detect or, or figure out that there might be an impairment there, a potential challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain that a little bit for our listeners? Because it, it almost makes me think about um, uh, thinking about something like, you know, in the home, everybody's used to Siri and uh, used to, you know, OK, Google. Um, there's a part of me that thinks that potentially if I was deploying this as an application that was meant to be for, you know, older parents or something like that, that that's something that you could add on. Uh, so that, you know, instead of those things, just listening to pl- and playing music, you could potentially be saying, you know, tell me if my, there's something potentially wrong with a parent, right? You begin, you, be, you could potentially have that technology start to be used in, in, in everyday instances as mm-hmm. a way of actually trying to get in front of certain diseases for, you know, someone who might have the genetic tendency towards that. So maybe can you talk about that? Maybe not, uh, sort of explain it from a, from a layman standpoint. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think like the, the general trend is making it easier to assess disease. So you start with the extreme where you have someone that goes to a large hospital, they get a two hour assessment, mm-hmm. um, and then you can use that as part of the diagnostic process. And so the next step is, can we make some of this remote? Can you actually assess people remotely in their home? Uh, that makes things significantly easier. But then can you make it even easier? And can you add it to Amazon Alexa? So instead of there you, go. you know, having someone do a one-hour assessment or even a five-minute a five minute assessment, maybe they're just talking to Alexa. So maybe Alexa is a sort of cued to ask sort of specific questions about this person. So Alexa might say, tell me about your day. Um, and based on that response, that might be uh, indicative of, 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 say, depression or maybe they're just, you know, having a bad day. Yeah, no, that's great because I think in, in you know, what from the consulting standpoint, where I work with consulting, we do a lot with uh, cloud companies and health tech companies. I could see your product being something that gets added to a diagnostic for um, a medical checkup. And I could mm-hmm. see that being remote and being part of the movement of apps that are um, uh, in, involved in much more of the telemedicine and that movement. So um, I, I think that that's really what drove the question, just trying to understand where you see the potential technology going, because I think it is fascinating. Yeah, I think like the, the biggest challenge here is not the technology side. It's, it's, it's how to actually commercialize it. Who's going to use it? What's the low-hanging fruit? Got it. Um, especially medical science, like there's, there's so many hurdles. And uh, you don't necessarily want to take the easiest path to selling like, direct to consumers that can hurt credibility, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily want to take the hardest path either when you're starting a new company. And so, so I think that's that, that's where uh, our challenges lie. Um, that's a lot of different interesting ways of, of commercializing that. And so we've we've chosen working with life science companies, working within their clinical trials because there's a very mm-hmm. strong need to better measure response to therapy. Fantastic conversation, Liam. Uh, great to hear you and Mike mixing it up. Uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its Leading Disruptive Innovation Certificate Program. 
At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the Leading Disruptive Innovation Program, visit li.rutgers.edu. Welcome back, uh, Mike, Liam. The conversation so far has uh, really been very informative, and I think it's uh, our listeners are, are looking forward to hearing the and to continue this discussion. Uh, let's keep it going. Yeah. So just before the break, Liam had talked about you know working on some clinical studies with some of their partners. So I think be an awesome time to to hear about a few of those clinical studies that you have the most excitement about, and and you know what you hope to gain from them. Yeah, for sure. Right. So I think one of the studies that we're really interested in. Um, a project with a company called uh, Cortexime. Uh, they went public uh, in the winter. Um, they're actually doing a phase two clinical trial uh, with a drug for for Alzheimer's disease. And so what's what's interesting here is that they're actually using our technology as an experimental endpoint. So not the primary endpoint, but this is sort of a critical step in proving efficacy. So showing that our technology uh, might be a better, more sensitive measure for disease progression. Um, so that's a really sort of critical step in becoming a primary endpoint is being able to show that, you know, our technology is a more sensitive metric for disease progression. So that's one that we're really excited about. Um, the other is, is with a company called Elector, also based in South San Francisco. Um, what's interesting there is that we're taking a slightly different approach to measuring disease. So instead of waiting for people to come to the clinic, we actually send iPads out to families uh, and then mm -hmm. the caregiver administers the assessment. And the advantage there is you actually lower the burden uh, for the participant. They don't have to come to the clinic. And when they do have to come to the clinic, they don't have to do more and more tests. But the other big advantage is you end up getting a lot more data. So instead of getting data every three months, you mm -hmm. can get it monthly or, or, or even more frequently than that. Uh, the third one is with uh, Johnson & Johnson. Um, they've been qu incredibly supportive. We're part of J-Labs up in Toronto. Mm J&J -hmm. uh, &J Innovation has been sort of an internal champion for us with, with, with Janssen, their, their farm uh, subsidiary. Um, and what we learned is that you know, a lot of these companies actually have been collecting speech data for at least a decade. The reason why many of these companies have done it is because they wanted, um, because these, these, these existing endpoints are so subjective, they take a recording and then they have two clinicians listen to these recordings uh, and then they both score them. Um, and now they're starting to realize that they have this you know, incredibly powerful data set and they can use these to sort of create even better endpoints. And so part of what we're doing with J&J uh, is really using some of these existing recordings to see how we can improve upon these existing endpoints. That's great. So when I think about clinical studies, I think about it in the classic pharma sense, right? If you can write a $3 billion check, and you've got 12 or 14 years mm -hmm. of patients, then, you know, ideally, you know, 10% of all chemical compounds or biologics will make it through and, and get FDA approval or the equivalent in Canada. What what are we talking about here? How, how different are these kind of clinical trials in terms of the amount of time required to get to approval? Yeah, so um, clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease are especially long um, because the disease is sort of you know, slow, it, it takes sort of a, a year to sort of see significant change over time. And so typically, uh, they want to have each participant in the trial for a year and it takes a long time to recruit. Um, so you might have to run a trial for three years to get enough data to show that, you know, your treatment is better than the, the alternative. 
Okay. Based on what you've learned so far, both directly and in some of these early trials, anything to report, any kind of you know, early findings that you're able to report in terms of impact? Mm-hmm. So with Cortexome, we were also part of their phase one clinical trial. Phase one clinical trials are, are like their typical aim is to look at safety. Um, but they took the step of having a placebo group and a treatment group. So they wanted to actually see if there was a bit of signal there. Um, and of course, it was a safety study, so the study was only four weeks long. But what was interesting is we actually did find um, a treatment effect. And we were very cautious because this is you know, a very small study. But what's interesting about this type of technology is that we could actually look at the transcript. And so we could see what the person said, and we could compare the after treatment and before treatment, and, and, and you could sort of see the differences before and after. Um, and so that was really exciting for, for, for both us and, and, and especially Cortexime. That's great. So there's an immediate linkage to treatment and, and efficacy of treatment. Yeah. Yeah, just, and one question I would have is, so um, given that there's this movement around Alzheimer's and you're specifically using the technology and applying it in, in, for this particular disease, I know we talked uh, on, uh, during the break about some other diseases you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, it, are there what makes the speech portion of it effective across a number of uh, diseases and what other diseases are you looking at? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, speech is a really complex behavior that um, involves multiple components of the brain. And so anytime you have any sort of uh, impairment, whether it's uh, depression, multiple sclerosis, schizophrenia, um, it will change how you speak, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in not so subtle ways. I mean, just from an anecdotal point of view, um, when you talk to someone who is sad, you know, they sound sad. When you talk to someone who is tired, they sound tired. When someone has, has you know, schizophrenia, they can be very incoherent. So there's a sort of cluster of symptoms that are disease-specific, and our goal is to measure those disease-specific symptoms and come up with biomarkers that can measure each one of those different uh, diseases. And thus far, you're feeling like that. There's a there's a real accuracy around that. I mean, I know you're in clinical, clinical trials, but you know how accurate um, is the technology that you're developing in terms of being able to really drive to a, a particular diagnosis? Yeah, so you know it, it, it it's really disease dependent, but it can be anywhere from you know seventy five to ninety five or even one hundred percent accurate. So for some types of dementia wow. that primarily impact just language, we tend to be very accurate okay. for those. Um, but other disorders can be a bit more subtle, a bit more complicated. Um, so it really depends on the disease, the severity, et cetera. Okay, fantastic, fascinating. So as we as we go forward, right? So you know, there's a lot of science here, but you're still running a startup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's a couple of things I want to pick back up on, you know, J&J support, right? And I think this is just an important lesson for all of our listeners, right? The ability to become part of a global innovation ecosystem, the ability to have, you know, big brothers, big sisters, executive sponsors who are there to support you is so critical. So can you talk a little bit about how J&J has, in fact, supported Winter Light Labs? What are some of the things that they've been able to do to kind of, you know, bring you to the next level? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, when you're doing, I mean, doing startup in general is just difficult. Doing health tech is sort of an order of magnitude more difficult. Credibility is something that's, you know, really challenging for an early stage startup. I mean, it helps when you have good science, but you need more than that. And so mm-hmm. I think what, what J&J did is they started um, J&J uh, Innovation, but specifically JLab. So they set up these physical locations. Uh, the first one outside of the, the U.S. was actually in Toronto. Um, and so what they do is, is they create this, this physical site where companies can work out of, 
And then they connect different people within J&J, so, you know, domain experts with these companies to help accelerate what they're doing, uh, to help connect them with different things that are, you know, happening within J&J. Um, but our, our second investment probably wouldn't have happened had we not been part of J-Labs. Uh, you know, what, what happens is when investors come to town, they often will go right to J-Labs Toronto and say, can you recommend anyone that fits the specific criteria that we should talk to? And so that's really, really helped us uh, quite a bit. That's great. And you're out raising another round, but mm -hmm. with, without, you know, getting into a lot of detail, what are you hoping to accomplish with the next infusion of capital? Yeah, so really like the, the next sort of value inflection point for us is, um, moving to uh, a number of different indications. So not just dementia, but looking at things like depression, uh, schizophrenia, multiple sclerosis, um, but also creating models that support multiple languages. So right now we primarily support English, um, but we have evidence that we can also do Chinese. We can also do Spanish and French. And so it's just a matter of validating those additional languages um, and creating models that sort of span multiple languages as well um so i i think that's a big part of the story is 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 really getting the capacity to uh, support additional indications and additional languages okay when when i was doing my research for the sackathon i came across just a stunning number of companies mining voice and you know mining imagery for healthcare purposes you know at, at incredibly high levels of accuracy right mm -hmm. So for the benefit of our listeners, right, outside of the world of cognitive impairment, you know, can you talk about some other exciting applications of AI, machine learning, statistical learning that you're aware of that you think will be truly disruptive and truly impactful in the world of healthcare? Yeah, so there's, you know, one, um, one company, MindStrong, um, they're really interesting because they're, they're not just looking at language, but they look at how we use our, our phones. And so... Effectively, they're able to make inferences based on, you know, what apps you use, how frequently you open those apps, the way that you use your keyboard, um, you know, how you switch from app to app. And then they're, they're able to tie those behaviors to specific domains. Um, so, so whether that's, you know, spatial, executive function, memory. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, also becomes another passive way of, of looking at uh, disease. Um, and, and I think, you know, our, our general view is that these types of technologies really complement each other. And so you're going to see this, you know, shift to using not just uh, speech or not just how people use their uh, phones, but, you know, looking at eye movements, uh, looking at facial expressions, and really, you know, synchronizing all these different technologies and to create very rich models um, that account for a lot of different aspects of, of, of these different diseases. Wow. So it's kind of Chinese merit medicine. When I think of a, a classic Chinese doctor, mm. right, they, they, you know, unlike a lot of Western doctors um, who seem to be very um, narrow in their approach and they have a script pad in hand, Chinese doctors will look at, you know, your skin color, your, you know, your tongue, your, the color of your eyes, right, and, and the, your complexion. Um, and we're just taking that to a completely different level. Mm -hmm. by bringing all these different assessments together. Fascinating, really fascinating. So, you know, we've talked often in this in this room about uh, the strength of the Israeli ecosystem, better known as Startup Nation. Mm -hmm. Just had that chat again uh, in, in the last episode that we recorded with Daniel Rosenberg. Um, so there's a very interesting company called Beyond Verbal. Mm -hmm. And Beyond Verbal, based in Israel, is mining voice data for, you know, detecting cardio types of uh, issues. Um, can you talk a little bit about that path 
and and where we are along that path for people and you know how accurate that is and uh, you know what kind of uh, early successes might a company in that space be able to bring to the healthcare community? Yeah, so I think that's that's a really interesting approach, and it's it's a lot less obvious than looking at cognitive impairment or depression. You know, areas where doctors sort of intuitively understand the changes, um, but looking at you know heart disease or you know change, changes in arteries and trying to relate that to speech is is, is a little less uh, intuitive. Um, but you know, I think I, like I would caution the interpretation of those results, there's like, there's a chance that, you know, if you just look at people with heart disease versus people that are healthy, maybe you're picking up on anxiety, perhaps. Um, right. So it, 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 you definitely have to, you know, uh, proceed with caution, and I assume that they are. Um, but, you know, there there tends to be this this tendency in the media to kind of focus on the, like on the, on the big picture and less sort of like the uh, scientific specifics. But um, I, I suspect that they're doing good science and they're taking into account all those uh, extra factors. But just along those lines, right? So it makes me think, um, and I think throughout the course of this conversation, which has been absolutely fascinating, uh, what, where is the societal view on this, right? We talked at the beginning a little bit about the perception of potential challenges with negative perception around introducing this uh, technology right, to the consumers immediately because of some of the issues. And we've talked in previous episodes about privacy and those types of things. I'm curious what kind of, um, not negative feedback, but what sort of challenges are you seeing uh, or, or have you received, if any, um, from consumers about the potential use of, of your technology or even just the technologies we've been talking about in general? So in, in the cognition space, the feedback has been very positive. And the reason for that is because these pen and paper assessments take 10 to 15 minutes and they're extremely stressful. Mm-hmm. And so what we're asking people to do is to describe a picture in about a minute or two. Okay. There's no wrong answer to describing a picture. So people don't feel like they're doing a poor job. And, and so that has been very uh, positive for us. I think it becomes a bit different when you start to do passive monitoring. Then you have privacy issues. Right. Um, and I, I think that that's much more complicated. Um, and so the, the approach that, that we've taken so far is to be an active assessment. Um that obviously adds a little bit of friction, but I think the flip side, though, is that we don't have to deal with, with some of the you know same privacy and ethical constraints that someone who's doing passive monitoring and just sort of recording everything would have to deal yeah, with. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I mean, I, I asked the question earlier about Alexa and, and uh, Siri and all those things, and immediately I know there's you know certainly going to be a large group of people saying, we already have issues with that happening anyway. <laughs> don't add the element of health and healthcare companies having that data, exactly. being able to say, you know what, I'm going to limit what healthcare you get potentially. So yes, there's a swarm of challenges there around the consumer uh, side of it. And so uh, it's certainly something that, um, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, you can see the positive side of it, but to your point, if people are actively engaged in it rather than it constantly being there, then it's it's a little bit better uh, than, than it just sort of happening. Yes, for sure. So Liam, as I was listening to you talking about what Winterlight Labs is, is, is doing, um, I had this crazy idea that perhaps there's another startup that you guys could be involved in. Um, so if you think about everything that's going on with mass shootings, uh, right, and background checks, wouldn't it be interesting if you could, as a part of background checks, when the guy walks into, you know, the gun show, right, he wants to buy a gun, Mike, uh, he goes into the room and you just ask him a few questions. And if you took your technology, we could potentially have a much more interesting way of doing background checks that allows us to at least begin to predict potentially. Now, it is a little minority reportish. I, I, I'll get, grant you that. But there is a potential for being able to use this. In theory, right, you could detect tendencies if you were using your technology uh, as a form of a background check for, for guns. What do you think? 
Yeah, so I would want to be care- <laughs> be careful about, you know, s- stigma associated with, you know, mental health challenges. And I mean, like, 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 this is more of a political issue, but I think a lot of the shootings are motivated by other factors and not just mental health. I tend to agree with you. Um, so I'd, like, I, I definitely want to caution that that use case. Um, and, and I think, you know what, though, you've you know, t- touched on something that there's so many different use cases for this technology. So one question that, that we often get, especially since um, cannabis is legal in Canada, is, you know, could you use this to detect if someone's high? Mm-hmm. Probably. You know, could you use this to detect if someone is, is drunk again? Um, absolutely. People slow their speech when they're when they're drunk. So there's there's a lot of different use cases. Um, but when you're doing a machine learning startup, you really need the data. That's right. And, and the data is the rate limiting step for anything that we do. And so if we went into, say, the use case that, that, that you mentioned, you would really need a data set to support that. So um, basically, we'd need to go to an NRA gun show, walk around recording a bunch of people, and I'm not anti-NRA at all, but it's, it's just an interesting and a fascinating concept. And I think you, you raise a, a good point and a fair point that, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the predictive side could get very dangerous very quickly and you could get into political quagmire and social quagmire for sure. Mm-hmm. But thank you for entertaining the question. I was curious to hear what you would think about that one. So just one last question as we wrap up, and that is, you know, very promising early results. Um, you know, this whole podcast here is around disruptive innovation. There's no question that you have the ability to truly disrupt the quality of care for people suffering from cognitive illnesses and mental illnesses, which has been, you know, for, for a whole bunch of reasons, really lacking. So very exciting. What is your vision, right? What, when you get to steady state, mm-hmm. where would you like to see Winterlight Labs be and what impact would you like to have on the world? I think right now, when you look at how mental health is 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 diagnosed, is measured, it's really you know cumbersome. It's a long period. The feedback loop is 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 really long. And then you look at something like diabetes, where people can monitor the, themselves multiple times per day. They can tell if their meds are working or not working. And I'd like to see sort of the same shift in mental health, where you can imagine you know doing our assessment multiple times per day or once a day or once a week whatever and you can see the impact of your medications you can see if they're the right ones if the dose is right um, and so, so I think the, the idea is about figuring out you know how people can get better much quicker and I think this type of technology that really lowers the friction and allows people to self-assess can really do that and so we see speech as being part of that um, but really a critical com- component to being able to measure people more frequently um, to better measure response to different therapies. Okay, this is the part where we talk about you. Yes, you. Midway through each show, we take a break from informing listeners about all the amazing things going on in the world of business and technology to personally deliver your message to our innovation-driven, industry-leading listeners. If you'd like to be a part of the show and become a sponsor of this segment, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at This Is Cool at DisruptiveInnovationPodcast.com or This Is Deep at DisruptiveInnovation.info. <laughs> Reach out to us and we'll get you on the show. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. So this is my favorite part of the segment. Uh, three things. So I ask you three things that you've read or what you want to tell our listeners. Go ahead. Point yeah. number one. Yeah. So point one actually relates very closely to the discussion that we just had with Liam. Okay. And there was a research report that was just released by a professor from the University of Rochester. And the conclusion is, is that top artificial intelligence professors mm-hmm. 
are being poached by industry at an alarming rate. So it turns out that over the last 15 years, 220 top AI professors okay. have left their academic posts to go work in the, all of the names of the companies that we, we certainly know and recognize. But what's even more alarming is that, you know, um, a significant number of those have happened just over the last year or two. So there's a tremendous spike in that. And the question is, why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue because they're, they're finding that when these professors leave with any level of uh, significance of a, of a department, mm -hmm. uh, there's a dramatic reduction in the number of AI startups that are coming out of these universities. Because they don't have the professors to teach them. Well, they certainly don't have the, the right professors. Yeah. They may yeah. have professors, but they don't have the leading luminaries you know, that probably have inspired people like Liam and his compatriots. Right. And so this is, you know, it's, it's like we're eating our seed corn. Jeez. And, and if you look at some of the numbers here, you know, Alphabet has poached 23 professors, mm -hmm. Amazon 17, Microsoft 17, Uber, Facebook, and NVIDIA seven each. You know, and Carnegie Mellon has lost uh, 17 professors. UCAL Berkeley, University of Washington have each lost 11. So, you know, you lose 17 professors from your AI faculty, it's going to have a significant impact. So it's like a space race for AI faculty members. They're, they're, they're in high demand. And if you're a professor out there, you, it's just a matter of time before you get poached. The, the salaries are just so hard to... Wow. Resist. I mean, as I had heard at a, an AI summit in Silicon Valley, these guys are getting paid the equivalent of a second string NFL quarterback salary. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, so how do you walk away from that, right? Yep. But, it, but, but I think, you know, as we talked about in our China episode, yeah. it's a very important thing for us to understand is that, you know, China is making massive investments of government capital. Yep. Um, in into their universities, and they're they're you know, having a lot more disclosures, a lot more patents, a lot more filings, and so as we start to you know go in and purge from our universities, our best of professors, it's going to be felt. Right, but also remember, and we talked about this before as well. The other part of that is there's no there's no replacement cycle, right? So we've cut down on the number of visas for people who are coming over to study or even coming over to teach. It's uh, it's going to bite us in the bottom for sure. This is a perfect storm. Yep. Yeah, Liam. Liam is with us. I'd love to get Liam's perspective. We don't normally have the benefit of, of our guest expert talking, but I think he's he's obviously very qualified to weigh in. Please, Absolutely. Liam. Absolutely. Please. Jump right in. So in Toronto, we have the the Vector Institute, and what they're trying to do is actually address this problem. And so what they've acknowledged is that, you know, professors want to be academics. They want to publish, but at the same time, they also want to work with industry. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have to sort of solve the salary issue. And so what they do is, is they sort of give a salary top up to make it more appealing to stay in industry or to stay in academia. But they also allow them to easily work in, in industry uh, as well. Um, so that's been tremendously successful. That's that's partly funded um, by sort of the, the three branches of government in, in, in Toronto. So, you know, national, provincial and uh, and actually from the university as well. Um, and, and I think that that's that's one solution. I think that mirrors what you're saying about China, where the government's actually chipping in. Um, and I think you really need to do that. I, I think, it, you know, for a lot of professors, it's not just about making more money, um, although the money is much, much more than they would make in ac academia. But it's also about, you know, being able to deal with massive data sets. So instead of you know, having a data set that maybe has a million data points, you work at Google and you have like a trillion data points. Right. Um, so you can make you know, you, you can have a much better, 
bigger impact. No question. And, you know, this is also interrelated because we think about the discussion last week with Lee Edwards. Yep. And we've talked about how the U.S. government has in many ways abdicated its duty in terms of funding basic science and how over the last 40 years, more and more of that has fallen on the private sector. And, you know, the problem is, is that private sector can't possibly invest at the same rate that the government does. So, you know, and, and I'm not surprised that Canada is doing this. Canada has always been incredibly enlightened from a technology policy point of view. They have been always about startup creation and, you know, unbelievably supportive, right? And and especially now in the wake of what's happening in this country, as Nikiso just alluded to with our immigration laws, um, Canada is a real beneficiary of, of our myopia. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just just one last point about that. Uh, one of my grads programs at NYU ITP, they did that as well. They incubated uh, a faculty member who is actually also paid by paid. Part of his position was paid for by Sony. So Sony sent him over from Japan to come and be a part of the program uh, to both l- learn and lead at the same time. All right, that was uh, that's a heavy one on number one. Let's yeah. go to point number two. So point number two. So you know th- th- we we have this presidential election in the United States it's coming happening, fast. and we've all got our fingers crossed that, <laughs> that the right party will win this time. And and I want to mention uh, a specific presidential candidate that I think uh, would would be very interesting to a lot of our viewers, our listeners, but they may not be aware of this guy. Mm-hmm. And I and I want to set the context because I think you know Nikki. So this will be a future episode, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're talking a lot about machine learning and about you know uh, disruptive technologies, and of course there is some societal cost. There is some economic cost, whether it's the the fact that you've got autonomous trucks. Mm-hmm. You know, truck driving is the single biggest occupation in this country. Absolutely. And when you start to eliminate drivers from trucks, you know, you've put tens of millions of people out of work. And there's a lot of players in that space. Uber, yeah. uh, Waymo, there's, there's a lot. A lot of pilots already being, you know, run today, yep. you know, in sort of the Southeast right now. That's right? Right. I'm sorry, Southwest. So the reason I mention this is because as, as much as, you know, we are certainly fans of progress and we are fans of improving the way that the world works, there will be dislocation. There will be negative implications, right? Andrew Yang happens to be one of the presidential candidates, happens to be from New England, which is where we record, out mm-hmm. of Boston, yep. happened to run a startup. And then he created a company called Venture for America. And Venture for America was all about creating company formation and job growth in the inner cities of some of our most broken cities like Detroit, like Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And he, I think more than any other presidential candidate is contributing really meaningful policies around how to manage the dislocation that is being caused by artificial intelligence. He is focused on making sure that we are developing the right sets of policies and laws around autonomous vehicles. Okay. Much more around, you know, retraining and, and um, you know, th- that they've gotten, they figured out in, in the Scandinavian countries decades ago. But, you know, for those of you who may not be aware of him, um, he's polling at 5%. He will be in the, the, the September and October debates. Okay. And, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, he's not getting nearly the level of attention, even though he's polling at five times what Beto O'Rourke is polling at. But for those of you who care about this subject, I would encourage you to go to Andrew Yang's website and see the incredibly deep level of policies that are very, very related to everything that we've talked about in this podcast series to date. Well, that's fantastic. So stay tuned for uh, Andrew Yang some point uh, sitting right here with us uh, telling us about these policies. 
All right, last but not least. Yeah, I think from a timing point of view, Nikki, so given that WeWork is out on its IPO roadshow, <laughs> I think uh, now is in fact the perfect time to talk about WeWork. And I think most of my listeners who follow me on on LinkedIn know that I'm not a big fan of WeWork. And and let's, let's be very clear, right? So this is the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. That's correct. And um, the CEO, Mr. Newman, um, has wrapped his rental company, his old school, old world real estate rental company Mm -hmm. into new age clothing, okay? And somehow has been able to convince a lot of people, including some very deep pocketed people, that there's something disruptive about what WeWork is doing. But that is absolutely untrue. (laughs) So here we sit today where Alan Newman is finally trying to take this company public. Now, what I find remarkable is he has raised... I believe 16 billion USD. That's okay? a lot of money. He his last financing gave the company a valuation of 47 billion dollars. Now, the roadshow, of course, when you go public, you now need to release your financials. That's right. And boy, did we learn a lot about those financials. So here's just a few things that I think are fascinating, okay? Um, Newman has been taking many, many tens of millions of dollars of loans directly from his company, Mm -hmm. okay? Secondly, he owns many of the buildings that he is now leasing to WeWork. So he is profiting on both sides of the transaction, an incredible conflict of interest, okay? He has no employment contract, so he could leave at any time. That's pretty squirrely, right? Pretty, that's unprecedented. (laughs) And then finally, what I find just incredible is he is already liquidated almost three quarters of a billion dollars of his own stock options. Now, it's one thing to, you know, get a little bit of liquidity in the secondary market, but nobody has come close Mm -hmm. to taking three quarters of a billion dollars in your own startup off the table just before you go public. You know, I've taken two companies public. The, the, The optics of how you act with a level of confidence in your future, smart CEOs actually decide they want to buy more stock in That's their company right. as a, yep. it's a level of certainty. So not surprisingly, right? And I don't think it took a lot of you know brain power on my part to predict this, but I've been saying this for a very long time. The day of reckoning would come when they put their financials out. And certainly what's happened over the last week is that Wall Street has said, not on my watch. There's no way $47 billion is even close to a valuation that we can support. There's no path to profitability. And they're looking at a valuation well below $20 billion, right? A massive haircut. Now, there's even talk of the that WeWork might postpone their IPO for another year while they potentially raise more money and, and have SoftBank's vision fund, you know, keep them alive because they are burning through a lot of cash. Now, the trouble with that little, uh, you know, potential delay is mm-hmm. that the trade wars are putting They're our economy in a very bad place. We're all seeing a lot of economic slowdowns and, and the first people to stop spending money are startups. Absolutely. The vast majority of WeWork's clients are startups. And they will start working out of their garages and their living rooms again if they have trouble raising money. And you're going to see a mass defection of WeWork clients, right? And they are holding long-term leases. So this could get ugly really fast. So, you know, we'll see where we wind up, but it's certainly moving in a direction that I, if I was running WeWork or I was one of his investors, I would not be feeling very good about right now. 
Well, I got to tell you, just the fact that if you, you know, WeWork to me sort of did what Starbucks did, all right? You turned around one day and anywhere you go, any block almost, is a Starbucks. And uh, it certainly feels that way when you go into any city. There's a WeWork the minute you get off. There's a WeWork around the corner. So, yeah, it's uh, that, that, that growth uh, has got to be coming from somewhere or, or maybe not. Well, it's coming from, you know, in, incredibly deep pocket investors, including Sa- uh, SoftBank. Yep. But the, I think Talk the difference that. between Starbucks and WeWork is when I think about Howard Schultz, Howard Schultz is a real leader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I know there's some controversy around his, his uh, very right. short-lived political yep. ambitions, yep. but yep. he's a man that really cares about the community and, and does his best to sort of deliver. And, and there's never been a scandal about personal self-enrichment. And I think when I, when I think about WeWork, I think about Groupon. I think about group, uh, growth for growth's sake. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot of the stakeholders are holding the bag. So in the case of Groupon, the, the stakeholders holding the bag were a lot of these small businesses that yep. didn't really understand what they were signing up for. Yep. And I think a lot of people in the real estate industry got sucked into a vision that is just a, a very, very delusional vision of, of you know, a high-tech company reinventing the world of work. It's not. They rent you office space. People have been doing that for generations, for, for millennials. Fantastic. Well, Liam, thank you for being here today. This has been a great conversation, great discussion. Uh, We're looking forward to having you back on the show at some point uh, so we can hear more about what Winterlight Labs is doing in the future. Uh, Thank you. And uh, uh, hopefully our listeners out there uh, enjoyed this segment. Mike? I'm, again, well beyond my expectations. Really fascinating the the level of investment in health technology with AI and the progress that's being made. And I think Winterlight is a wonderful representative of what's happening there. So thanks again for taking the time to join us, Liam. Thanks for having me on. Hey, if you've enjoyed this session and any of our previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And give us a rating at the end, five stars only. If you have ideas or questions or any feedback from Mike and Nikiso, please reach out to us at thisiscool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or thisisdeep at disruptiveinnovation.info. Thank you. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Goodbye.